Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, let's get our Bibles out and let's turn to the Proverbs. As a matter of fact, why don't you put one finger in Proverbs chapter 4 and then flip over to James chapter one, uh, James chapter 3, I'm sorry, and put a finger there. In the first session uh, this morning that I had, I spoke about the 41 years of my ministry. In this session... I'd like to speak about the last year and a half, two years. How about that? And as always, why don't we pray and ask for God's blessing before we we get started. Father, we thank you for the great fellowship today. Thank you for seeing old friends and and making new friends. And Lord, we realize that uh, what is fellowship but two fellows in the same ship? And Lord, we have found friends today. We found other brothers and sisters who are in the same boat we're in. Lord, we're glad to be in this boat. We, We love your people. We love your word. We love the ministry. Even though the storm has gotten severe lately, though the boat has encountered some, uh, some tough navigation, nevertheless, Lord, we're happy to be in this boat. And whether the waters settle down or whether a new storm picks up, Lord, we want to be faithful to steer our ship toward heaven's shore. So, Lord, please speak to our hearts in this session, Lord. Challenge us, encourage us. And, Lord, most of all, may we leave this session wanting wisdom, seeking wisdom, desiring wisdom from above. We pray this and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Proverbs is a father's instructions to his son. Through these Proverbs, a dad imparts wisdom. But even more so, he wants to cultivate a hunger for wisdom in the heart of his son. The writer knows that his son will be a better man and live a better life if he pursues wisdom. In fact, the opening chapters of the Proverbs revolve around two women. This father warns his son about the immoral woman. She reduces a man to a crust of bread, preys upon his precious life, has cast down many wounded, and her house is the way to hell. This father warns his son to steer clear of this wicked woman. She's been in more laps than a napkin, and he doesn't want his precious son to be her next victim. Instead, the writer of the book of Proverbs tries to fix up his son with another gal. Her name is Lady Wisdom. The father here in Proverbs 3 verse 13 says, happy is the man who finds wisdom. And this is God's desire for us today. Check out Lady Wisdom. She's attractive. She's a knockout. She would be a blessing to any man. Lady Wisdom is a real catch. And here this father's encouragement to his son 
in chapter four, verse five, Proverbs chapter four, verse five, he says, get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will preserve you. Love her and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. Exalt her and she will promote you. She will bring you honor when you embrace her. She will place on your head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory. She will deliver you. Marry wisdom, embrace her, and she will adorn her man with grace and crown him with glory. Get wisdom. And Solomon is speaking here from experience, for he too made this wise choice. Solomon practiced what he preached. Do you recall the story early in his career? The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that Solomon was only 14 years old when the Lord appeared to the young king in a dream. Essentially, God gave to Solomon a blank check. He told him, ask, what shall I give you? At the time, Solomon was overwhelmed with the responsibilities he had inherited. In fact, he confessed, I do not know how to go out or come in. In short, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm at a total loss. He faced enormous challenges for a 14-year-old. A great nation had turned their eyes toward him. They were expecting a child to lead them as his father David had done so successfully. Perhaps you have a 14-year-old at home. If you gave him or her a blank check, what would they order? Video games? A new skateboard? AirPods? Expensive sneakers? Or would they ask for a starting spot on the varsity team or perhaps be the captain of the cheerleaders? Well, even at 14, Solomon asked for wisdom. He was wise enough from the start to know that he needed wisdom. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9, Solomon makes his request, Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Solomon was wise enough already to know it didn't matter the size of his bank account or the length of his days or his popularity or even victory over his enemies. For if he wasn't wise in leading his people, nothing else would matter. His life and tenure would be a disappointment. And God was pleased with Solomon's request. So much so that along with wisdom to lead, God threw in everything else Solomon could have asked for but didn't. Riches and longevity and honor and victory. Proving, Matthew chapter 6 verse 33, before the Savior even spoke the words, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And do you remember what happened next? A crazy court case was brought to King Solomon. This was a case that you'd find televised on Judge Judy. Two women, hookers no less, they were roomies. Each woman had a baby, and yet one of the gals rolled over in her sleep and accidentally smothered her child. The mom got up and swapped her child's corpse for her roommate's living and breathing child. And there were no dental records, 
No DNA, no maternity tests. It was one woman's word against another. What was the king to do? King Solomon said, bring me a sword. He threatened to cut the baby in two and give half to each lady. For the king realized that a baby's real mother could never put an argument ahead of the life of her own flesh and blood. In a brilliant example of wisdom, Solomon settled the dispute and discerned the child's birth mother. Justice was served through wisdom. And I love how 1 Kings chapter 3 closes. Verse 28, all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Now, I want you to hear that again. For they saw that the wisdom of God was in him. And this is the challenge I want to leave you with in this session. Does your church, even your community, see the wisdom of God in the decisions you make? For after over a year of this pandemic, and now it looks like it's far from over, my big takeaway is that I need wisdom, and far more of it than I ever thought. Over the last year, every pastor here has faced some whose baby is this type of decision. I mean, how do I support the pro-life president when he acts ugly and speaks like a jerk? Do I back the police when everyone saw what the Minneapolis cop did to George Floyd? Do we wear masks and confirm what many folks believe that we're caving into fear? Or do we go maskless and say to others that we really don't care about our community? At times this past year, I've wanted to speak with Solomonic wisdom. Bring me the scissors and cut up everybody's face mask. Then a new COVID case would hit a person I know and the concern would reappear. Two weeks ago, I did the funeral for an elder in our church and a friend of mine who died from COVID. And as I speak to you to this morning, I'm concerned about another member of our church who's on a ventilator and has been for the last two months. Please pray for Ann and for Chris's family. The coronavirus and its variant are still a lethal threat. My takeaway from ministry over the last two years is that in times of crisis, the leaders of a church have to think clearly and demonstrate discernment and lead their congregation with godly, spirit-inspired, God-ordained, prayer-obtained, near-Solomonic wisdom. And you get wisdom by seeking it in advance. Like Solomon, you need wisdom to get wisdom. There's so many pressures today bearing down on a pastor. It seems like every church member has their own special interests through which they see the world and make moral judgments. And people love to label, don't they? They see every conflict as good guys versus bad guys. And they'll clump you in with the bad guys for the silliest reasons. Social media has become the megaphone that makes these voices of approval or disapproval louder. In the wake of it all, too many Christians and church leaders have lost the courage to think critically. We succumb to superficial biases. 
and jump to conclusions and make generalizations and oversimplify complex issues and paint people with a broad brush. Too many leaders have stopped seeking wisdom from above and have capitulated to the groupthink. Over this past year, pastors, especially pastors with a Christian school or with a Sunday school or with a lot of elderly people or who serve under unfriendly governments have encountered one impossible decision after another. Have you discovered that despite what people assume, not all situations are right or wrong, white or black, up or down? The answer isn't always clear. I mean, there can be legitimate concerns on both sides of an argument. And I'll lose favor in the eyes of some folks with either choice I make. It's truly a no-win situation sometimes. Listen again to Solomon's exhortation to his son in light of the decisions you and I have had to make. Get wisdom, get understanding, love her, and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. That's true today as much as any time since Solomon. I remember when, like Solomon, I was 14 years old, ministry-wise. I was actually 22 when I became a pastor, but I was as lacking as I, I could have just as easily been 14 for that matter. I thought the decisions were difficult then. I figured when I got older, I would accumulate some wisdom and the job would get easier. I hate to tell you, that's just not so. Today I'm 63 and the decisions are more high stakes than they've ever been. Maybe as a church, we now have more to lose, but this past year has been excruciatingly difficult. And yet God has been faithful to us. He really has. He has given us wisdom and understanding and more. This last year's chaos provided a backdrop for God's wisdom to shine. As with Solomon, our church and school and community saw that the wisdom of God was in us to administer justice. I think folks realized that we weren't going to seek God's, that we were going to go to the mountaintop and we were going to seek God's will, not just toe a party line. In the midst of the long pandemic and times of unrest, we've gone before God's throne of grace to get wisdom. And as with Solomon, he's given us not just wisdom, but what we didn't ask for. We've had increased offering and more people. This past year at Calvary Chapel, Wisdom has proven to be the principal thing. I haven't told Kathy yet, but I think she already knows. I got a girlfriend. She's Lady Wisdom. And I love and long for her more and more and more. And yet I've discovered that though God gives wisdom, he first has prerequisites. As in the case of Solomon's blank check, the fact the king asked for wisdom indicates the boy was wise beyond his years in the first place. You see, wisdom begats wisdom. It's the New Testament principle taught time and time again. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. And this is true when it comes to acquiring spiritual things, including understanding and wisdom. The rich get richer, and the wise get wiser. There is a verse that addresses God's prerequisites for us receiving wisdom. 
In James chapter 3, the apostle contrasts heavenly wisdom with earthly wisdom. There is the wisdom of God and there is the wisdom of demons. James says in chapter 3 verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And this is where I'd like to camp out for the rest of my time with you this afternoon. God entrusts his wisdom to people who seek it with the following three attitudes. First, God gives his wisdom to the pure, to people who have no personal or selfish agenda, who have no ulterior motive, people who are simply lovers of the truth. Second, God gives his wisdom to the peaceable. The peacemakers are willing to put in the work to promote unity and harmony. They're gentle rather than harsh and headstrong. They're strong enough to yield their opinions knowing they are merely opinions and extend mercy. They are the bearer of good fruits. And third, God gives his wisdom to people who work to avoid partiality and hypocrisy, who are the impartial. If you want to make wise decisions and be respected by your community and your church, then be pure, be peaceable, and be impartial. Wisdom begets wisdom. God gives wisdom to the pure and to the peaceable and to the impartial. Let me start with this third attitude first. James 3 verse 17 tells us people living here below need wisdom from above and that wisdom is without partiality and without hypocrisy. This means you'll obtain God's wisdom if you strive to eliminate unfair biases and prejudices and generalities from your thinking. You see, a wise man refuses to wear tinted glasses He avoids looking through colored lenses. He wants to see clearly without prejudice. And we should all recognize that our perception gets tinted by various factors. Culture, past experiences, assumptions, our upbringing, misconceptions, preferences, prejudices. A person full of God's wisdom makes a concerted effort to be objective in their thinking and in their processing of life. You could say it like this, wisdom avoids using broad brushes to paint people. You see, a broad brush is used by an artist when he wants to just throw out paint onto the canvas. You know, spread it out, spread out a vast sky or a vast ocean. But no artist ever tries to paint a masterpiece with a broad brush. A real work of art requires smaller brushes to fill in the detail. It's the subtle nuances that create the realism. And the same is true in navigating people and relationships. A broad brush approach takes you only so far in evaluating people. To know someone, to have a meaningful relationship, it takes narrower brushes that apply the finer points and paint in the details that make us who we are. Oh boy, even the Cape Crusaders... You know them, Batman and Robin. 
the great champions of fair play once made the mistake of painting with a broad brush. Let's go on location right now. Whatever happened to that kind of acting? <laughs> You'll have to tune in next week to see what happens. But holy stereotype, Batman. Robin made a hasty generalization. You can never trust a woman. And our hero, Batman, corrected what apparently had become a troublesome habit for the boy wonder. I'm sure Catwoman is the only woman of which that's true. But don't you hate it when someone broad brushes you, makes a generalization about you? When they say all conservatives and pro-lifers and gun owners are vigilantes? How many of those stereotypes could be used to pigeonhole you? Look at the last swipe there. My pillow customers? Look, I bought a my pillow just because I bought a my pillow doesn't make me a domestic terrorist. Don't do that to me. I just wanted a good night's sleep. See, we as Christians hate to broad brush, hate to be broad brushed. Yet why are we so quick to do it to others? How often have we made hasty generalizations? Have you ever thought all homeless people are lazy. All lawyers are crooks. All politicians are dishonest. All teenagers are irresponsible. All preachers are greedy. All New Yorkers are rude. All Southerners are slow. All bosses are uncaring. All Episcopalians are liberal. All rich people are materialistic. All blondes are dense. All Baptists are closed-minded. All CGN guys are pushing for women preachers. All CCA guys are older than 50. Hey, whenever you hear the words all or every, beware. You have just made an assumption that is probably not true. You remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 8 verse 15? He says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And in the eyes of modern woke Pharisees, judgments are still made according to the flesh. 
If you're white, you're a racist. If you're black, you think you're oppressed. If you're Asian, you're good at math. If you're Hispanic, you might be illegal. If you're a man, you're probably a misogynist. If you're a woman, you're trying to break through the glass ceiling. Rather than learn a person's name and just get to know their underlying passions and principles, it's easier just to stick a label on them and pigeonhole that person. This is why stereotypes and generalizations are tools of the bigot. By fostering assumptions based on the flesh or our outward characteristics, you can dehumanize the people you don't like and make yourself look more righteous. You can separate how you treat them from how you think you should be treated. This is how people justify prejudice and cancel people with whom they disagree. Yet in John chapter 8 verse 15, Jesus said, I judge no one. And of course, Jesus is the one person who could have judged. He had access to the all-seeing eyes of God. But unlike this world and its Pharisees, Jesus judged no one according to the flesh. Jesus cared about people so deeply that he looked beyond their appearance or their category or their grouping to the thoughts and intents of their heart. Jesus used a different standard for evaluating people. In John 10, he calls himself the good shepherd who knows each sheep by name. Jesus understands our idiosyncrasies and our peculiarities. Prejudice just slaps the paint on with a broad brush. But love fine tunes and paints by the numbers. It stays within narrow lines. Love realizes that each of us is God's special creation. Just as the creator makes no two snowflakes or fingerprints or retinas identical. No two people are exactly alike. And God's wisdom is gifted to the people who understand this truth and seek to judge impartially. Which brings me to the second prerequisite for receiving wisdom. James says that wisdom from above is not only without partiality and hypocrisy, but is also peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits. So in order to receive this kind of wisdom, it helps if you match it with the same sorts of attitudes. Are you peaceable? You know, the Greek word means tranquil or passive. When the Portuguese explorer Magellan sailed the straits at the tip of South America, he went from the violent, stormy, hurricane-prone Atlantic into another ocean that at the time was far more docile and passive. Thus he named it Pacific or peaceful ocean. Are you a stormy person? Always stirring stuff up? Are you the one who's always causing turbulence in relationships at church? Reminds me of the man whose habit was to rock the boat then try to convince everyone else there was a storm at sea. In contrast, Psalm 133 declares, how pleasant is it for brethren to dwell together in unity. Do you love unity and enjoy its pleasantries? Boy, I do. James 3 verse 17 teaches us that God's wisdom goes to the peaceful, not the stormy. And it also flows to the gentle. This Greek word speaks of, not of weakness, 
but of moderation and restraint. This kind of gentleness is strong enough to hold its tongue and keep its opinion to itself. Rather than make a rash judgment, it has the ability to wait until all the information is in before it draws a final conclusion. Gentleness is careful to avoid erroneous evaluations. One of my all-time favorite television commercials, and that might say something about me that I have a favorite television commercial, but one of my all-time favorite was done for the Super Bowl by AmeriQuest Mortgage. A man comes home from work before his wife. He plans to treat her to a delicious meal. He's been to the grocery, and he has all the ingredients to cook spaghetti. He even has cut flowers for the table. But as the sauce simmers on the stove, the couple's fluffy white kitten jumps up on the countertop and knocks off the pot of sauce. The cat falls into the spilt spaghetti sauce, which colors her white fur a blood red. The husband has been chopping lettuce. So as he reaches to clean up the spill, he's got the butcher knife in one hand and his blood red kitty in the other hand. Just as his wife opens the door and sees him. You want to see it? I got the clip. Here is a loving, caring, thoughtful husband. The envy of most wives. He's cooking honey, a dinner for his honey. He should be rewarded for his love and initiative. Instead, his wife thinks he's a cat killer. And the caption sums up the commercial's message. Don't judge too quickly. In dealing with people or in dealing with issues, We all should be careful about jumping to wrong conclusions, especially under the unprecedented circumstances that we faced this past year. Hey, prior to 2020, no one alive could say they were experienced in navigating global pandemics. Obviously, experience has been a non-factor in these decisions because nobody's had any experience. This is new ground for us all. I'm sure we all decry being told to wear a mask. But I'll tell you, if a surgeon came in to do surgery on me and he wasn't masked up, I'd run for the hills. Don't say a mask does no good at all. I'm sure it has its limitations, but it's got to do some good because everybody in the operating room is wearing one. I'm just saying it's arrogance on our part to be running around pointing our finger at each other and accusing each other of this or that. I think I was the first pastor to reopen after the lockdown. Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain opened May the 3rd. Few people opened earlier. But now over a year later, we still have a section of our seating reserved for masks only. I'm convinced that the church needs to meet in person. But I have no idea whether a mask does any good or not. It might. Who am I to say? Thus, we want to give people options and the opportunity to follow their own conscience. I'm just saying wisdom refrains from pointing fingers. 
How can I get on my social media megaphone and tell other pastors in other states when and how they should reopen their church? And if they don't do it on my timetable, they're cowards and really don't love the Lord. How could I do that? How can I stand in my pulpit and tell other pastors they were wrong for resisting what they felt were overly restrictive government orders? I don't know their people or their situation. Hey, at the very least, I can applaud the courage of their convictions. If ever there was an appropriate time to apply Romans 14 verse 4, it seems to me this is it. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Of course, someone might ask, Sandy, don't you have an opinion on reopening church and resisting the government? And I'd answer, absolutely. I got an opinion on almost everything. But as the old saying goes, opinions are like belly buttons. Just because everybody has one doesn't mean they're useful for anything. Heavenly wisdom will yield its opinion, for an opinion is just an opinion. Wisdom distinguishes between opinion and truth. Realize it is biblical truth that Jesus is coming back to snatch away his church, and it can happen at any time. It is biblical truth that the Jews will regather to their ancient homeland. It is biblical truth that the world will reunite under the rule of the Antichrist. But whether or not Joe Biden's pullout from Afghanistan is tied in any way to biblical prophecy is only an opinion. Don't lose, pastor, don't lose your ability to separate biblical truth from opinion and speculation. In a world that's polarized, in fact, in a church that's probably just as polarized, There'll be no real unity unless we are all willing to yield our opinions and show each other some mercy and give each other the benefit of the doubt. A rigid and dead uniformity occurs when one opinion is exalted above all others and people are pressured into embracing that particular opinion. Whereas unity flourishes when the truth is distinguished from opinion. Harmony happens when the truth is embraced and opinions are treated for what they are, mere opinions. This is the wisdom that produces good fruits. James is telling us that the person who receives God's wisdom is the person who's willing to work at unity. He or she puts in the time and the effort that wisdom requires. Recently, I read a quote from an Arab actor who said this, At times, stereotyping happens, not because of any nefarious reasons, but rather because people don't know who you are or where you come from, so they go for the broad strokes about you, your culture, your faith, all that. I think he's being generous in his evaluation. He's saying that the reason folks jump to conclusions or paint others with a broad brush isn't because they're racist, it's because they just don't take the time or make the effort to get to know the person or the situation. And I'm afraid pastors are the worst culprits. We're often too busy to check out what we hear. And yet people are pressing us for an opinion. And so what do we do? We make judgments based on rumor and hearsay. 
Rather than refuse to speak until we know what we're talking about, we parrot what we've heard. I know because to my own shame, I've done so. And it's not wise. And it's not the attitude that God blesses. This is why James chapter 3 verse 17 tells us that God's wisdom is received by people who are determined to be peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits. I've heard it said this way. The people who judge seldom help. And the people who help seldom judge. Wisdom cares enough about people to actually work at relationships and get involved in other people's lives. And the absence of this attitude is our unity's biggest hindrance. It's so much easier just to jump to conclusions or use broad generalities about people than it is to hear all the facts and reason out a truth-based conclusion. I hope you realize rarely is anyone or anything all good or all bad. Most people tend to be a mixed bag. You remember what God said to Jeremiah in chapter 15, verse 19? He said, if you return, then I will bring you back. You shall stand before me. If you take out the precious from the vile, you shall be as my mouth. At the time, the prophet's character was part precious, but part vile. How often could the same be said of us? Well, our desire to serve the Lord, that's a precious thing. But in doing so, we've grown bitter and angry. That's a vile thing. The point is, nobody's perfect. We're all a mixture of motivations. And the same is true with the decisions we have to make. Rarely is a pastor's evaluation so one-sided that serious deliberation isn't necessary. Seldom do we get to make a choice that's good over evil or right over wrong. It's a luxury to be able to say, here's a decision, chapter and verse. Those are the easy decisions, the good versus the bad. But most of the decisions I've been called on to make, especially those I've had to make over this past year, are between what's good and best. And these are the harder choices. What do we do when there's good and bad on both sides of an argument? Where there's an uneasy tension that exists? Part of the problem today is that pastors are expected to know it all. We're called on to be experts in everything from theology to epidemiology. And yet not every decision is clear. It's not always an up or down vote. There's usually some truth and wisdom on both sides of the argument. One thing is for sure, we have to resist the urge to make shortcuts and come up with easy answers by doing, without doing our research or just accepting what someone else tells us or mimicking what we've heard on the internet. A man of God is responsible to seek and stand on what is true. Shortly after the pandemic broke, I got a call from an Atlanta news reporter requesting an interview on our church's response to the pandemic. It would have been some nice publicity for Calvary Chapel, but I turned it down. I felt the place for me was on my knees before God, not in front of some camera, but pretending that I'm an expert when obviously I'm not. Throughout this pandemic, we've had to balance lots of competing concerns. Our community's health versus the need believers have for in-person worship. 
the merits of wearing a mask versus our individual freedoms. The benefits versus the risk of vaccination. Complying with government versus maintaining precious liberties. These are hard decisions. These days, seldom do I face a decision where there's not some truth in both the pro and con columns. It reminds me of how F. F. Scott Fitzgerald once defined the word genius. He said, it's the capacity to hold two conflicting ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Let me repeat that. Genius is the capacity to hold two conflicting ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. This definition has been so helpful to me. Yet rather than label this capacity as genius, I prefer to call it wisdom. It's wisdom that balances competing priorities without needing to immediately reconcile them. For example, we need an assistant pastor, but we lack the money. But we lack the money because we need an assistant pastor. Both may be true. Pulling on the string at one end is a need for faith. At the other end is financial responsibility. And wisdom is the ability to balance both concerns at the same time and act on them successfully. The point is, wisdom comes to the peaceable, not the stormy. People who are committed to truth, not steered by opinion, and people who are involved in solving problems, not creating them. Which brings us to the third prerequisite for receiving God's wisdom. Verse 17 tells us, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure. And I've saved what's first on James's list as last for us, because I feel like purity is the most important condition for obtaining God's wisdom. If you're going to walk in wisdom, you can't be toting with you a hidden or a self-serving agenda. Your motives and your judgments have to be pure and sincere. The word here means clean, innocent, unadulterated, the opposite of which is murky or cloudy or polluted or compromised. Some pastors criticize not because they're concerned about truth. They have ulterior motives. I've seen pastors find fault in others just to make themselves seem holier. Oh, look at me. I'm the sole keeper of the flame. I'm the lone man of God who's refused to bow his knee to Baal. By bringing another person down, they can elevate themselves. This is selfish motivation and very unwise. See, here's how it often plays out. We develop a beef with a brother. But rather than deal with that beef as is... We blow it out of proportion, and we look for substantiating evidence that might justify and bolster our grievance. So often in our criticisms of other people or groups, we sell out the truth to bolster our beef. Accusations get exaggerated. Infractions are blown out of proportion. We extrapolate conclusions based on where it all might lead rather than what's actually been said or has been done. And we do it because we want to condemn the other side and render those people guiltier than they actually are. It's not peaceable or gentle, and it's surely not pure. 
over the course of this CCA, CGN breach, this has been done over and over by both sides. One group wants to demonize the other group as worse than they are, so they make unfair and inflated accusations. I certainly have disagreements with the Calvary Global Network, and I have problems with its direction. But no one I know in that group is heretical. I still have more in common spiritually with many of the CGN guys than I do with the Baptists and Methodists down the street. I'm just saying God's wisdom comes to the pure, to those who use it for impartial and peaceable purposes. Actually, one of the most egregious examples I see of biased, agenda-driven judgment is the evil tactic of tearing people down using guilt by association tactics. Here's a cartoon that illustrates how it works. Larry King is old. Tiger Woods plays golf. Both men cheated on their wife. So the principle of guilt by association says that if you're old and play golf, you cheat on your wife. And that's why this fella gets a whack on the head. Of course, it's not fair. It's not right. But sadly, church people and pastors do this same kind of thing all the time. Someone assumes that because I participate at a conference with another speaker, I must be aligned theologically with that speaker and be in harmony with what he stands for, has to say. That's ridiculous. I may not even know that person or have even heard of him before. Actually, I've been to Calvary Chapel conferences where I haven't always agreed with the other pastors on stage. Just because I shake hands with a fellow doesn't mean I share the guy's entire theology. I recall Pastor Chuck, Pastor Chuck of all people, being accused of compromise because a photo was taken of him on stage at a harvest crusade with a pastor who had questionable beliefs. It was silly. Sharing the same space physically doesn't mean you share the same place theologically. Again, the folks that get away with these kinds of judgments, the fact that that happens and people get away with it, it says to me that many pastors lack wisdom and aren't thinking for themselves. Hey, we're content with easy answers and superficial evaluations. We have stopped thinking critically. Some of us have. Sadly, I run into a lot of pastors who I felt were more committed to the party line than they were God's truth. Hey, when you start to say to yourself, if I want my status to rise in this group, then I better not listen to this fellow, or I shouldn't be thinking like that, then you're no longer pursuing truth. You've become a slave to the approval of men. You're valuing promotion over purity. God help us. This is not wise. As Solomon said, get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forsake her and she will preserve you. Love her and she will keep you. Like the apostle John, I have no greater joy than for you to walk in truth. But over time, the best way to ensure that you walk in truth is to be spiritually discerning and to think critically, not just blindly follow the Pied Pipers. I want you to be like the prophet Habakkuk. When he saw confusing signs on the world stage, he saw God raising up the army of Assyria and he wondered why. He didn't run off to the group down the street or log on to the slick website or podcast, nor did he think only what he had been told by others to think. 
No. In his own world, this is what he did. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what God will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Habakkuk sought the high ground. The man of God went to the top of the wall. He found a quiet place where he could get alone with God. And the prophet sought the Lord's will and his alone for his life and ministry. And this is my desire for you. That's what I trust you'll do in the days ahead. In these tumultuous, chaotic times, get wisdom from above. That's what you need. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. Let me close with a song I sing from time to time. Though I've learned thousands of worship songs since, this is my go-to song. Whenever I'm around the house or in the car, this is the tune that always pops into my mind. It's an old Maranatha music song by Chuck Gerard. And don't worry, I'm not going to actually sing it. I'm just going to quote it. Our lives are in your hands. What better place for them to be? The one who sees beyond today must know what's best for you and me. Oh, Lord, I trust in you, for your ways are not like mine. Remember me in all my narrow ways of thinking. Help me, Lord, just to trust in what you say. And I love that line. Remember me in all my narrow ways of thinking. Deliver me, Lord, from my limited perspective. Help me to trust in what you say. And the way he delivers me is through wisdom. You need wisdom in turbulent times. Embrace her. Don't forsake her. Exalt her. In all you're getting, get wisdom. Father, thank you for your words to us this afternoon. Lord, help us to be wise men and women. And Lord, how we need wisdom in these perilous days. Help us, Lord, to seek you to hear from you, to value your word above all others. Lord, help us to follow you in these these days. We pray it and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.